Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Second Kings chapter 3, we're, gonna, we're going to begin with verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, the king over Israel at Samaria, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. Now God speaks to us. When we, we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a book of history. And it, it records the moments when God intervened in history. God is the God of history, isn't he? And God is taking history somewhere. God is working to fulfill his eternal counsel and his eternal purposes. And these are about, this account that we're going to read about are are about two separate kings. Verse 2, Jehoram, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, which was Ahab and Jezebel, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. So, there was something good about him that he put, he, he put away the idol worship of Baal, but he did something that was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 3 it says, Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, and he did not depart from it. The sins of Jeroboam concerned the worship of God, and Jeroboam moved the center of worship away from Jerusalem. He set up golden calves. He set up a false system of worship that was not pleasing to the Lord because the Lord had directed that Jerusalem was the place of worship. And although it was a politically expedient decision, it was a a decision that did not please God. And particularly Ahab and Jezebel were evil people and they sought the dark side. They they sought the, the prophets of Baal. They were channelers. They were new agers. And their whole spirituality had to do with the worship of demons. And so this king was, just did not have the pleasure of God at all. Verse 4 says, Now Mesha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But it came about when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So under Ahab, because he had dominated the, the Moabites, he said, you've got to pay this, this huge amount of of, of lambs and wool and all that. Well, when Ahab died, the king of Moab said, enough of that, we're not paying anymore. So the king of Israel took counsel and decided to take action. It says in, in verse 6, it says, Then King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, rallied the troops, saying, these guys aren't paying their taxes, let's go get them. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now you understand at this time, Jerusalem, or the, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Jehoram was king of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel, and um, Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom. And uh, so he sent word to Jehoshaphat saying, come and join with us, come and join with us, and we can attack the king of Moab, and our, our, our supply of taxes will not be cut off. And he said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. Now, King Jehoshaphat, he's, he's a better man, a more righteous king than Jehoram. He wasn't one that sought channelers and sought spirituality through the false means. But 
He had made a marriage. He had married his son off to King Ahab's daughter. So there was a political marriage there. And so because of the family ties, he felt really obligated to help the king of Israel. And so there was compromise, compromising with the, the whole place where King Jehoram was at in his idolatry and his, and his, his false worship. There, there was a merger there, and he says yes to this venture without consulting God. And so he says, my army is your army. Let's go together. Verse 8 says, which way and which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, there's a great error that's committed here because these kings take on a venture and they, uh, I can just hear Jehoram, he's thinking, hey, I'll get Jehoshaphat on my side. I'll get another king, the king of Edom. We got all these armies. We got these weapons. We've got this, we've got that. We can go and whoop the king of Moab, no problem. And so they were taking counsel among themselves. They did not consult the word of the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that when you do go to war, first of all, you're to seek God's counsel. And then secondly, the priest is to bless the armies in the name of Jehovah and to send the blessing of God with them as they, as they would go out and do exploits. These kings didn't either. Jehoram epitomizes a man that lives in self-confidence, not in God dependence. He's a man, a kind of a self-made man, a man that leaned on his own resources. And he looked at his tally sheet and he figured, man, we can win this thing. I, we, they took counsel and they went ahead and they did it against, well, they didn't even consult Jehovah God. One of the great errors in church history that's committed by the church is when we don't seek the will of God. When we don't say, God, what is your will in this matter? The book of Joshua is a great book to study and read. And there's one instance where Joshua did not seek the Lord. And there was a bunch of guys called the Gibeonites, and they had heard about what Israel was doing in the promised land, how city after city was falling as they were marching under the power of God and, and waging a great military campaign. The fear of the Israelites was on all of the natives in the land. And so the Gibeonites said, man, we're going to get wiped out, so we, we got to be tricky. And so they put old bread in their saddlebags. They got some old donkeys. They put on old clothes. They covered themselves with dust. And they came to Joshua and the Israelites. They bowed down and they said, your servants have come from a distant country. We've been on the, on the, we've been on the road on the desert trail for many days. And therefore have mercy on your servants. And they said, you're not residents of the land, are you? And they said, Oh no, we live far away in this distant land and we've come here to be your servants. And the Bible says that Joshua did not seek the Lord. And he, what he did was very foolish. He made an oath, a covenant with these people. And he, and he says, by the word of Jehovah, you will be our servants and our water carriers and our woodcutters, but we will not harm you. And in just a few days, they found out that they had been deceived, that these were folks, native people, right down the road, that God had given the command that all of the natives were to be killed and exterminated because of their sin and evil. Joshua made that mistake. And now these kings are making a very, very bad mistake. Let me say to you, my friends, that we must seek the will of God that we must consult Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for every decision in our lives, lest we end up like these men did. Now, verse 9. So the king of Israel went out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, this, this troika, this threesome, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey. The King James puts it quaintly. It says that they, um, they fetched a compass. And that's, uh, that's Old English for they went in circles. 
So what they did is they went out there for seven days and went in a circle. And it says that there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. And I can just hear uh, the kings, you know, they're out there on their third day and Jehoram says to Jehoshaphat, this kind of looks familiar, you know, have have we been here before? You know, Jehoram says, uh, you know, I think you're right. I think we've passed this way before. So they go another few days and they said, I remember that sagebrush. We passed by here. In fact, there's some tree, there's some marks in the sand where we were. And what's happening is now they, this great group of uh, this great army, probably, you know, multiplied tens of thousands of men and, and equipment and, and animals. And they're out there. They're lost and they're without water. Now, this is arid land. This is like being in Nevada, in the deserts of Nevada, where there is no water except at a rare, hidden spring or some place where you could find water, and you had to know where those were in order to survive. So now these three kings have their armies out there. They're lost. They're without water. And as of course, as the days go on, their canteens dry up. And without water, you, your energy is depleted and you're near death. And so this is really a severe, severe picture, isn't it? This is a picture, friends, of what happens in history when men a- attempt to lead lives without God. You study history, it's the circular wanderings of men and women in rebellion to God, repeating the same mistake again and again. And if you study history at all, it's a tragic story, isn't it? A terrible tragedy of men and women trying to live their own way, not consulting the will of God. Aren't you glad that as a Christian, we're not going in circles? God has not called us as individuals, nor as a church, to walk in circles. He has called us to walk step by step in the path that he has for us. Proverbs 4.18 says it this way, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter until the full day. I've been walking with Jesus 22 years now. And every year is, is a new adventure. Every year the Lord unfolds new realities in my life. Because I'm, I'm not walking in circles. My life is not a life of church as usual and sit in the pew for another year. But I'm on an adventure with the Lord Jesus Christ and I want my life to count in him. And this year, this last year has been one of the exciting years of my whole Christian life. One of the more things, things seems to me has happened in, in 1995 than has ever happened in my life. And that's because we're on a journey. We're going forward. And I trust that you have that sense that God is taking you somewhere. God is preparing you. He is working his eternal destiny in your life. And he has purpose. And he has reason. And if you and if you can just lay a hold of that, that purpose for your life, it gives you motivation to press on with all your heart to the full purposes of God. One of the big temptations that we all can face is we ask one another, which way should we go? And one of these kings said, I think we should go this way. And everybody goes, all right. So they went that way. And six days later, they are in this terrible mess. And they're in great despair. Now it says in um, in verse 11, in their despair, well, look at verse 10. It says, then the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now see, he's figuring now God's going to judge us. God's brought us out here to kill us. And, and he begins to blame God for something that he got himself into in the first place. Jehoram never sought God. He just decided on this great military expedition that cannot fail. It's like those surefire business deals that can't fail, you know, that guys come up with. This was, this is one of those schemes that is just, is just not going to work out. And then Jehoram blames God. 
and said, God, it's your fault. You know, you brought us out here to give us into the hand of the Moabite kings. How many times do we blame God for messes we get ourselves in? We get ourselves in horrendous debt financially. And then we blame God. Say, well, God, why'd you let me get in this debt for it? God says, I didn't lead you to do that. You didn't consult me about that. Or we end up with a messed up family because we don't operate in scriptural principles. And then we, then we get mad at God. God, why is my family such a mess? And God says, well, you didn't consult me. You didn't do my will. James tells us, he says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why do you not, don't you even know, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And God gives us a very gracious promise. He says, if you lack wisdom, what are we to do? We're to ask. And he says, I will give you wisdom without reproach. He's not going to say, ah, dummy, you should know that. God wants to pour wisdom. He's delighted the more we come and ask him for wisdom, and he wants to pour that into us. So let's not blame God if our life is in a mess or a predicament that is of our own making. Let us call on the God of mercy who is willing to redeem the situations that we get ourselves into. God is a merciful God. We sang that song tonight. Let your mercies flow down from heaven. God is a God of mercy. And uh, as we'll see, God is going to be tremendously merciful in this situation. So here they are in this bear. Jehoram's blaming God. He's mad. He's fit to be tied. But verse 11, Jehoshaphat, at least Jehoshaphat, has the right sense of what to do. Jehoshaphat says, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Is there not a prophet of the Lord in the land? Guys, our society is is cascading towards disaster. I mean, you 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 pick it up in the, the secular media, the, the so-called experts of this age are all going, we are in deep yogurt. We are in trouble, aren't they? And there is a cry, a growing cry, when people are beginning to say, is there not a prophet in the land? Is there not someone who can speak for God? Is there not someone that can give us the counsel of God? That's my cry. God, raise up prophets. Raise up the prophetic voice in our midst. And he called for a prophet of the Lord, not a prophet of Baal, not a channeler, not a false prophet, as are so popular in our culture. But Jehoshaphat knew, I want a prophet of Jehovah God, the true prophet. In 1 Corinthians 14.31, Paul encourages and he says, for you all can prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. See, the New Testament inheritance is that every one of us can learn to prophesy. That means we can learn to speak the word of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and it enters people's life with impact. I was just talking to one of my students here, and they came to one of the Saturday night meetings not long ago. And as they were being prayed for up here, someone had a word of prophecy for them. And they, they were commenting to me that how that shook their life and spoke to them and has changed the direction of their life. That's why Jesus wants us to be anointed with the Holy Spirit so that as the word of the Lord comes forth, people know that this just is not church as usual. This is not like the Elks Club meeting. 
but this is the church of the living God. And where the living God is, there is revelation. There is exposure of hearts. And people come into our midst and God begins to speak to their heart. What do they do? They say, it says they'll fall on their face and declare God is certainly among them. That's the kind of awe that the church had in the book of Acts, isn't it? It says that many held the church in high esteem, but they dared not associate with them. Why? It's because if you went in their midst, somebody might read your mail publicly. I mean, someone might stand up and prophesy and run off a a readout of your sins in, in what's going on in your life right now. I believe that's something God wants to restore to the church. And God had his prophet. God has had his prophet, a young man named Elisha, who the scripture says used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, his spiritual father, the the prophet of his generation. And Elisha learned the ways of the prophetic by washing Elijah's hands, by fixing his food, by following him around the country, making his fire, packing his suitcase, doing whatever was necessary. And that was in a time of apprenticeship as he learned to hear the word of the Lord. And so what happens? One of the soldiers says, you know, there's a young man. He used to pour water on Elijah's hands, and he's just a young man in ministry, but I think the word of the Lord is with him. And so King Jehoshaphat says, call him up. Let's go see where he is. Verse 12 says, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. Oh, would that it would be said about us that the word of the Lord is with us. As I was meditating and preparing for this, there's a cry in my heart saying, oh God, send us prophets. Even though we're a nonprofit organization, Lord, send us, send us prophets. <laughs> send us prophets. We don't want it to be that way, do we? We want to be, a, we want to be prophets of God. And I'm saying that in the sense that the scripture releases all of us to be prophetic. I'm not talking about anything weird, but all of us can prophesy as we learn to hear from God. See, all of us can have the word of the Lord for the moment in the situation that we're in, in church and in the marketplace, particularly out in the marketplace where we're doing our daily stuff every day in our business relationships, in our economic relationships. When we meet someone and there's a need, the word of the Lord can come forth as we have an ear open to the Lord. See, that's that's what Jesus wants. He wants to anoint the whole church, every one of you, that you can operate in the prophetic. The word of the Lord is with him. Are you willing to pay the price that it takes to get the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord does not come easily. The word of the Lord doesn't come to a casual seeker. But the word of the Lord comes to the man or woman that is willing to say yes to Jesus in every detail of their lives. God shares his secrets with those who fear him, those who have a reverence for evil, those that will not tolerate sin and compromise in our lives, even if, even if it's the only the kind of thing that only God sees. And yet, if we will conform ourselves to what the Holy Spirit is, is commanding us to be, the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be, men and women of integrity, men and women of explicit honesty, men and women that can be trusted, then perhaps the word of the Lord will be found with us. Now, verse 13, they go and find Elisha. And I just love the sovereignty of God. You know, God never gets caught a day late and a dollar short. You know, God sovereignly works behind the scene, even when we don't see it. 
God is strategically arranging issues in our lives. And it just happened that this soldier said, well, there's this man, young man named Elisha, and he just happens to be nearby. You know, just all these coincidences. That's the sovereignty of our God who works all things after the counsel of his will. And so in verse 13, now Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you, you scumbag? That's what he's thinking. And he's looking at Jehoram because Elisha is a man of righteousness. He hates idolatry. He hates what Ahab and Jezebel did to the nation of Israel. And now he hates Jehoram in his compromise. And he looks at him and he says, go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophets of your mother. Go to the channelers. Let them help you out of this pickle that you've gotten yourself in. He's angry and he's burning with righteous indignation. But the king of Israel said to him, and, and, and the English doesn't express this, but, but in the Hebrew language, he says something like this, no, and it, I believe at that moment, King Jehoram faced truth, perhaps for the first time in his life, and he realizes what a difficult situation they, they are in. Not only are, not only are they vulnerable to the attack by the Moabites, but now they're lost and they're without water, and very soon the whole thousands of them are going to die. And he knows this is the end. I have made a mistake. I have blown it. My prophets, the ways of my father Ahab cannot get me out of this. And he said, no, don't, don't you understand that unless you do something, Elisha, we're cooked. We are doomed. And I think Jehoram faced truth in that moment. And I believe that the living God saw into his heart and poured out mercy. And the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. See, he understood that we're God's, God's let us go our own way. You know, that's many times the judgment of God comes that way. God just lets you do your own thing. God says, you want to do your own thing? I said, welcome, go ahead. And then what do we do? We just make such a mess of our lives. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has gone our own way. That is the root sin of the human race. And that's what God's working out of us. That's why God put places leadership and authority in our lives so that we don't go our own way. So we don't just run out and do our own thing. And sometimes doing our own thing looks pretty nice and righteous, doesn't it? But not in God's eyes. Not when we, when we don't fall into line with what he's telling us to do. He views it as sin and rebellion. And Elisha says in verse 14, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or see you. Why doesn't he have tenacity? I was going to use another word, but I thought, well, it's probably not, a, not appropriate here. But doesn't he has something of righteousness? Man, this is the king now. You know, this is like saying something to Clinton right to his face. But Elisha has no fear of man at all. Now, I want you to, now I want, I want you to watch something very beautiful that begins to happen. Verse 15 says, Elisha says, now bring me a minstrel. You know, get Todd Holbrook in his guitar. Let him come and play some of these great choruses. And so the minstrel comes, begins to play, begins to worship. And what happens? And it came about that when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. You know, we believe that being a worshiper of God is central to hearing God's voice. And the challenge is not just to be a worshiper on Saturday night or on Sunday morning or any other time you gather to worship. It, it, you know, it's really easy to worship when everyone else is worshiping. But it's a challenge to wake up first thing Monday morning 
when the pressures of the week are upon your mind and to wake up with a song on your heart of worship and praise to God. Or when you're facing difficulties on Thursday morning and things aren't going well and maybe you haven't slept well all night because your mind has been racing about this thing or that thing or this situation or this deal in my family. And to wake up in the morning with a song of praise unto the Lord. But I believe that is the key for us hearing the word of the Lord, is that we must be worshipers continually, not just at our large group meetings, but we must cultivate a life of worship and praise every day. And as we do that, what begins to happen is we begin to focus not on the things that are seen, but we begin to focus on the unseen things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.18, he says that the unseen is eternal, but what we see is only temporary. See the stuff, the street, the main street of Bozeman, the field house, the money, the stocks, the bonds, the, the whole thing that we live in on planet Earth. You know, that's all temporary. And the Bible says that's, that's unreal. It's temporary and it's passing away. What is the real? The real is the presence of God, the word of God, heavenly realities that the scripture teaches us and, and uh, the principles, the truths of God. That is what is eternal. And the more I become focused on the, the eternal things, the things which are not seen, they have to be seen with the eyes of faith. But the more I focus on that, the more that I become a worshiper, then more, the more real the word of the Lord is going to come to me. Todd mentioned that we took a trip down to New Mexico. We had a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to have uh, a couple of folks come and share in just a minute or two about that. And there was one evening that we were in worship and the presence of the Lord was so intense that I had to keep touching the chair that I was sitting in to make sure that I was still here on earth. Because I was thinking, um, I, I was really wondering if I'm, I was there instead of here. That's how real the presence of God was. And that's what Jesus wants for all of us. Not that we'll experience that all the time, but he wants us to know that the eternal things are the things that are not going to pass away, and those are the things that that are that are apprehended through a life of worship. And so Elisha didn't give his advice. He didn't. I, I'm convinced he had no idea what he was going to say. He didn't have anything premeditated. You know, he didn't have the plan. But he said, "All I can do is seek God," and he was smart enough to not try to fake it. And so he said, "Bring the minstrel." The minstrel began to play. And they begin to sing praise and worship unto the Lord. And it says, suddenly the hand of the Lord came upon him and the word of the Lord came to Elisha. If we're going to be effective spiritual leaders, and all of us are called to lead. See, all of us are called to lead the world to Christ. So this, all of us fit into this category. If we're going to be good leaders, we need to hear the word of the Lord. Now I'm going to ask Shelly and Chuck to come up. They went with me on this ministry trip. We all took Todd's class, Kingdom 101. How many of you took that class? Excellent class. And uh, we're, we're learning to operate in the power of the supernatural. That was the, the theme that was given to me. And, and so I took Chuck and Shelly along in order to uh, give them an opportunity. I kind of took them, threw them in the pool, and then they had to either sink or swim. And I was, I was really proud of the way that the Lord used them to minister. And they are growing in their ability to hear the word of the Lord. So, Chuck, will you share with us what did God speak to you and what what happened in your life? Well, um, as I as we were driving to New Mexico, I 
I just really wanted to be used to the Lord. That was my whole desire. Lord, just use me. And as Dick was was sharing um, on the first night, and 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 I, I forgot to uh, send in my application, so I kind of had a room by myself. That was not a planned thing, but God really planned it that way. And I was able to just continue pour my heart out that e that first night, and just this Lord use me, Lord use me. I just want to know more. I want to be your messenger. I, I I know that you have people here for me to 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 affect in some way for your glory. And um, as I began to um, just just go about um, the the conference there, it was probably from from Sunday afternoon to Wednesday morning at two thirty in the morning. We were I was constantly praying with someone. I mean, there was somebody that God gave to me to to speak to. There was always someone there. I want to share a couple of those stories of how God just just used me, and I just I just was just so my life's been changed because I got to see Him in actual work in my life. You know all this that the Dick has has been saying tonight. I know that most of you want that in your life too, and it really does work. I mean, God wants to use you. I'm nobody special. I'm just I'm just a willing person. And uh, on New Year's Day, we were. Shelly and I were, uh, were ministering to a girl who uh, wanted to uh, experience more of the Father's love. And we started about 10 o'clock that morning, and we got done about 1 or so. And, and uh, then there was a, a, another guy that was in the back of the church, and his name was Jason. Now, all the students, most of them, had left to go skiing or they went to Santa Fe on New Year's Day. And then we had a service that night. So it was about 1 o'clock, and I went over and I began to talk to Jason. Now, I had no idea what was going to happen, but what happened was something that really affected my life in, in a major way. I began to, to talk with Jason, and what he was doing, he was praying for God to send someone to come and pray with him so that he could receive his prayer language. And I sat down beside him and, and began to share the scriptures of how to receive his prayer language. And when he agreed that, that he was ready to receive, we went down to the altar and we were the only people in the building. There were maintenance men walking to and fro, and and uh, they were looking at us and stuff. And and we were there for a long time. Good, good Baptist men. <laughs> yeah, yes, it was a Baptist uh, convention center, so this was uh, really different. So, so here we were. We 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 came down, and and I stood in front of Jason, and I I just was trying to put my hand on his shoulder to pray. And I just felt the power of God come in a in a just an intense way. And I kind of stepped back because I was like, whoa, this is something else. And Jason began just to shake like a leaf. Just to, like, like God was just, just sticking a spiritual cord into his side. And he was just, I mean, he was just going. And <laughs> I, I got behind him because I thought he was going to fall over or whatever. And after about a few minutes, he I just kind of got tired of trying to hold him up, you know. And I said, Jason, just just lay back. And he did. And, and I just began to pray over him and he began to sing in the spirit. The Lord just came on him in a mighty way. And he shook and he was nailed to the floor basically for another hour and a half. And the maintenance people were walking to and fro and they were kind of looking at him. And, you know, they were just so surprised at how this was happening, you know, and I was like, well, Lord, you're just, you just do whatever you want to do here. But you know, that power, that intensity, that, that, that he was experiencing, you know, I just never 
had felt that, that, that just that awesomeness like he did at that time. And I said, Lord, I want more of that. So I began just to walk between the pews. And I was praying for the people that would be sitting in them that evening. And God really revealed just, just more of himself to me at that time. It was really an experience that, that I just really want more. I'm, I'm not satisfied with church as usual. Amen. I really want more. We were, the next day we were sitting at, 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 uh, having lunch in the cafeteria. And there was a, a Chinese student that came and sat with us. And we, we introduced ourselves and, and David was, is, uh, a Chinese student. Um, and he's been living in the United States for nine years and he's a senior. He's a graphic art, graphic artist major. And he really, uh, began to pour out his heart to us when we asked him what he had been learning that being here. And, uh, he, he said that, that he really wanted to, to know the Father's love. He wanted to experience it. He wanted to feel it. He wanted, he wanted it badly. And he was a senior. He was, this was a do or die situation. He wanted to, to make decisions and he wanted it now. So Dick said, well, why don't we just pray for you? So we just stood to our feet and we just, just uh, gathered around David. There was Dick and myself and another student. His name is Titus. We began to, began to pray for him and the power of God just came upon him. Just came upon him, and, and it was just so strong that, that David had to drop to his knees, and and he was just on all fours, and God was just doing a marvelous work, and he began to repent and just cry out to God, and and just the most beautiful prayers. You just had to cry because they were just so touching, you know. You just don't hear those kind of prayers, and uh, uh, Dick had to leave, and. And he, after we got done praying, I said, he says, man, I've never experienced something like that before. Now, David was Baptist too. And I said, well, David, would you like to experience something else? Would you like to receive your prayer language? Now, David says, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, if it's something more of God, uh, I think I'd like to. <laughs> so we began to share the scriptures together. And when, when we read in, in first Corinthians that the apostle Paul said, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. David says, well, if the Apostle Paul said that, then it's good enough for me. Let's let's do it. Now, we also prayed for David uh, because he had corns on his feet and they were really bothering. He's had them for six months, he said. And Titus um, knew David uh, briefly and he knew about those corns. So he says, let's pray for those. Before before Dick left, um, we prayed for those. And, and uh, David told us that when he got back to his room, which was three hours later. But when he got back to his room and took his socks off, the corns fell off his feet too. Yeah. So God really ministered to him. And as we began to pray with David to seek, seek his prayer language, he told me, he says, Chuck, I can't do this in English. I need to do this in Chinese. And okay, well, you know, it's like, uh, this is really something, you know, unusual. I've never prayed with anybody in Chinese to accept, you know, to get his prayer language. So he began to, you know, speak in Chinese and he's pouring out his heart to God, I guess. And, uh, then he became really silent and you could just, you, he began, his breathing became really deep and intense. And you knew that the power of God was upon him. I said, David, put words to it. I said, you got it. Put words to it. He began, he began to sing in the spirit again. Now, when we, when we began to pray with him, he had to drop to all fours again. And by the time he was beginning to really flow in his new prayer language, as he sang, he was standing straight up with his hands raised in the air. And it was just so awesome. And then after that, 
I just felt really led of the Lord to, to ask him to forgive me on behalf of all Americans who had, who had been so mean and cruel to him because of his language and because of his heritage. And David just wept before me. And we just nailed, we just kneeled on our, on our knees together and we just hugged, hugged each other and we just prayed for each other. It was just really an intense time. And I could just share just so many more miracles of what God did. And, you know, those, these, uh, situations were not planned. I, I just, I just was trying to say, God, who, who do you want us to, to, to minister to? What can I do? And many times he just brought them to me and he would, he wants to do that to you. He wants to use you wherever you're at. Yes, the word of the Lord. He wants to reveal that to all of us. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck is my intern this year. Him and his wife, Lori, came from St. Louis. And uh, they've been working with us, and it's been a a tremendous relationship. God's hand is on their lives. This is Shelly Moran. Shelly is a student and is nearing graduation. And uh, God widely used her. Just It was really exciting watching the word of the Lord come forth in Shelly's life. Shelly, share with us. Um. Well, I'll just share with you two stories, even though there's several of them I could share with you, and then I'll kind of tell you what I benefited from it. Um, one night, the Lord had given me um, a word, and there was this hole, and it was like this open field, and um, there's this person walk along this open field, and all of a sudden, they fell into this hole, and inside this hole, it was like really, deep, it's a deep, dark, cold hole, and they were all alone. And they were like looking up out of this hole and they could see this light, but they kept trying to claw, climb out of it and they, they just couldn't get anywhere. And um, so after Dick had given his talk and he had people come forward to say what the Lord had put on their heart and mind, I'd shared with that along with most, a lot of several people throughout the whole um, congregation. And um, there's a lot of people that came up for ministry and I prayed for them. And God really gave me specific words for those people I prayed for, which... Um, but I, I won't tell you about any of those stories. But after I done, got done praying for him, and I was, um, it was kind of like facing here, and like Dick was talking to you guys. And I went and sat down on this bench over here, and I was just kind of like exhausted and just relaxing. And then all of a sudden, um, this lady comes up to me and says that the Lord wanted me to pray for her. And she was a girl that was in my small group, so we met each night. And and so, and she, I'll tell you a little bit about her. Um, she was getting her postdoctorate in veterinary medicine and she was pretty much done with it. She was just applying for a school and she was praying that the Lord would just tell her where to go and if that's his will for her to continue on. And um, that's all I knew about her. And she was a very intelligent woman. She came and I prayed for her and stuff and I, I used Todd's model that he taught us and interviewed her and stuff. And I, I just wasn't getting where I needed to get with it. And then all of a sudden... I, you know, I got a word of knowledge that there was lots of pain and brokenness from men in her life, and um, all of a sudden she started breaking, and um, and then it started being a specific man and a boyfriend, and and just like God just kept giving specific words, and it just really brought healing into her life. But there was still something else, and I just couldn't break through it, and I just could see on her face just this agony that she just really wanted freedom from it, and she just really wanted the Father's love, and I, I wasn't getting any more. I mean, I, God had really done a lot through me, but there's still more that I just wasn't touching base with, and so it was towards the end of the ministry, and so I asked Dick to come pray with me for her, and um, she was standing and stuff when we were praying and um, waiting on the Lord and stuff, and 
and not much really happened except for she really cried out for the father's love. It's almost like she would die without it. She was just at that point where she was in so much need of the father's love. And there was just, she didn't know how to get it. You know, it just felt like everybody around her was being touched by God but her. And she wanted so much to be touched by God and to experience his love. And there was just so much pain and hurt. And um, we had prayed, but it just nothing really seemed to be clicking. And then um, it was getting late and stuff. And so we had set up a time to meet with her tomorrow. Um, and Dick was really busy meeting with several other people. And so I met with her and... Um, we went back to the room I was staying in, and luckily there was no one there because I had two other roommates. And after lunch, and we started praying, and then the Lord really gave me um, more words and knowledge for her that it was like deep down in her heart that she just, with so much shame that she didn't want to c- confess it, she didn't want to say it, even though that's what was preventing her from receiving the Father's love. And she was sexually abused by a, a foster brother. Her parents had wanted a, their first child to be a son, and when it wasn't, they wanted an older son, and so um, not only was she feeling rejection because she wasn't a boy, they also took in a foster brother who was 16 years old who molested her. And um, I mean, she really went into God had really given me specific details in it. And it's like I almost needed to know that so I could that there would be healing that would come from it. And um, she just really cried it all out. And um, and even though it's going to be a process of healing, I really saw God move in a powerful way in her life. And she had just been saved within three months before she came to this conference. And um, in our small group, and she didn't communicate this to us, in our small group she seemed very confident and all together and very intelligent. And she had spoken, one of the, you know, Holly asked different questions. One of the questions, you know, what kind of gifts do you feel the Lord has given you sort of thing. And she felt really gifted with the gift of prophecy and stuff. But after that day I had spoken to her, the next morning um, she came forward after the worship and praise, and she had a, um, a prophecy from the Lord. And I can't remember what it's from. I think it was from Deuteronomy where it talked about the Lord wants to send us all out into the nations, and even though we're going to be persecuted and we'll, there'll be lots of trials and stuff, we're big, God's bigger and that he'll keep sending more and more until we finally win. And it took her a lot of courage to come forth, but, I mean, I could just see God using her. As healing comes, he uses us. And, I mean, God's not a God of favoritism, and I just see know how he wants to use all of us and he wants to bring healing to all of us and there was another story um this other girl <clears throat> she came up from prayer one night and she just had a flood of questions to ask me and um I, I could address some of them but some of them were just so deep you know about heaven and the father's love and stuff and taking um that father heart class that Dick offered, I could answer some of her questions, but there was just a lot of questions she had, and I prayed for her and stuff, but she wasn't receiving the Father's love, and she's like, she didn't know, she wanted it really bad, but she didn't know how it felt different from the love that she receives from a person, you know, she didn't know what, how she knew she had it, sort of thing, Um, because it's not like a hug from another person or or anything, you know. And she was just really disturbed. And again, um, I had Dick help me pray for her. And um, so then nothing really occurred from that. But the next, um, later that, after that service, um, Chuck and I went and we really, we talked to her and we went through, he had the seminar notes of Dick's class and we talked her through all that. And we found out that there's a lot of things in her life that she hadn't forgiven her parents for. She was feeling a lot of pain and bitterness inside her heart. 
And um, she was just holding on to that pain. And she had said she had spoken words of forgiveness to her parents, but in her heart she was still holding on to the pain. And we kind of walked her through that, and we made her make a list of all the things that's ever injured her from her parents and other people that were closer, closer to her and had caused a lot of pain in her life. And then that lasted till about 2 or 3 in the morning, and then we called it quits for that night and met with her the next morning for most of the afternoon. And we went through the seminar notes, and she had a lot of questions, and we were able to address them through scripture verses. And um, and by that time, the, it, you know, t- towards that t- time right before dinner, we had ended it, and she really felt a sense of peace about everything. But that night at um, the service, when they came up and called people that had a word from the Lord, she came forward. And she came up, and she spoke that she was, <laughs> this kind of thing. She was in the bathroom, sitting on the pot, and the door was open in her motel room. And she's looking at this picture on the wall. And this picture is mountains and the sky and the sun and everything. And it was she saw it through a different perspective. She saw beauty in it and love in it. And she saw that it was made by the God, the creator. And, I mean, she saw this picture when she first walked in the room and just kind of absent-minded it. But the Lord had just spoken to her through that picture. And while she was sitting on that pot, she was given a song by the Lord. And she came forth and she sang that song. And it was a song of love. <laughs> it was a song of love and just... The father had showed her, I mean, he loved her in her own special, unique way, you know? And so she experienced the father's love that night. Um, I th- there was one thing, there were several nights that, I mean, it was so awesome. I think the thing that I gained the most from it is a new perspective. One is how the church should function, where it talks about in First Corinthians, um, where it talks about um, all bodies, I mean, all body parts but one body. And I really, for the first time in my life, had saw that. Because sometimes at this church, you know, you get people speaking in tongues and interpretations and someone prophesy, but it's usually the same group of people. But there, it wasn't just one or two every night. It was dozens or, or even a couple dozens of people. Every. And another thing that he opened my eyes to is just how big the spiritual realm is. It's like I was living in this world and seeing it as, is it being real? But after that conference and going to Toronto, God really opened my eyes to the spiritual realm, and and how much we are blinded by by the real what real what real is, and how much we get so busy in, in what we think the real world is, and we we make the priorities things that are of people of the real world, but our priorities are, I mean, we're only going to be here for maybe 80, 90 years, maybe 100, who knows, but. After that, everything we've done, everything we've spent all our time for is going to be wasted. And it's the relationships and the love and the healing and bringing God to the Father. That's what's going to last. And it just really gives me a, a huge, I just I really have a heart to set the people free and to bring healing and just to mend the brokenhearted you know, and just to bring them to the Father because that's what, that's what we're here for. And yet it's so easy to lose that focus. And so that's what I gained through this conference. Amen. Elisha is ministering to the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, I don't know what to do here. What do you have to say to these three kings? And suddenly the word of the Lord comes to him. And this is what he says. This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and all other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand over Moab to you. 
Make this valley full of ditches. And Jehoram says, imagine that. And Jehoshaphat says, that's a strange word. And the king of Edom says, boy, did I get in with a funny bunch. The kings leave the presence of Elisha, and they have the word of the Lord to make ditches in the desert. So they go back, each king to his own army, and says, all right, man, listen up. Get your swords out. Get your spears out. Start digging ditches. And they go, what? You heard me. Dig ditches. You can just hear the soldiers. I didn't come here to dig ditches. I came here to kill men. Get your sword out. Get your spear out and start digging ditches. I don't dig ditches with my sword. I kill men. I don't, kill, I don't dig ditches with my spear. Dig ditches. And the word spread. They didn't have a big PA system back in those days, so it had to spread by word of mouth. And so as, as time went on, the word came forth. Start digging ditches. Yeah, right. And I can hear the men, the, the soldiers, as they're working, and they say, man, this is crazy. I've never heard anything like this. There's no water out here. This is deader, this is drier than dry bones. Where's the water going to come from? We sure didn't learn this in military academy. But they worked by faith because that crazy prophet, that crazy prophet, what does he know? I've never seen this happen in my whole life. But the king said, dig ditches. God says, no ditches, no water. Ditches, you'll get water. So all night they labored, probably till the sunrise doing this irrational act simply based on the word of the Lord. Verse 20. And it happened in the morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice that behold, water came by way of Edom and the country was filled with water. The Bible didn't say where it came from, whether it rained or came out of the ground, but it was supernatural. It was miracle water. And it was only retained as the men dug ditches. No ditches, no water. You dig ditches, you get the water. Well, that's not the end of the miracle. I love God. He's so creative. It says, Now all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able put on armor, and older were summoned and stood on the border. And they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water. And the Moabites saw the water opposite them, as red as blood, presumably in the morning sunrise. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely come together and they have slain one another. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Midianites so that they fled before them until they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Midianites. And a great victory was wrought. All because... One prophet heard the word of the Lord and God turned a very desperate situation into an event that glorified His name. Now let me make application. God is sending us waters of refreshing, isn't He? How many of you have been refreshed this year? Let me see your hands. Amen. Almost everyone here. It has been a wonderful, wonderful time. But the word of the Lord to us, my friends, is that we must dig ditches. If we do not dig ditches, there's nothing to contain the glorious water of the Holy Spirit that is coming. And if we don't dig ditches, the water will very quickly wash away 
and nothing will be left. I was born in the charismatic renewal in 1973. It was a full-fledged revival where I saw the acts and the power of God. And so I came in thinking this is normal Christianity. It certainly hadn't been in the mainline church that I had attended for a number of years in my growing up, in my days of growing up. But after I met Jesus, I saw Him at work. And I saw God do wonderful, wonderful things. But as as all movements go, they come in like a wave that breaks on the ocean shore and uh, accomplishes great, great things. And then the water recedes back, doesn't it? And waits for the next wave. That's the way God seems to work. And in, in the wake of all that God did in those days, and as the water receded, there's many people that I sat in meetings and worshipped with. Men and women that I prayed with and we loved Jesus together and saw God's hand. Yet today, many of them are not even walking with the Lord because they didn't dig ditches. And all the water just rolled away from their lives. And when the emotions of the moment, the emotions of the revival diminished, they went back to living a secular, non-Christian life. Sad to say, many of them are not even serving the Lord Jesus 20, 22 years later. And that's a grief to my heart. But there's been some that have dug ditches. And that during the time when the water recedes, we've done the things that the Lord has required of us. Dug ditches, obeyed His Word. And I'm going to give you some very practical things that I think we need to look at. And because of that, there's been something to contain the water of refreshing that's been poured out. And now there's a new wave that's breaking upon us. And friends, if we do not dig ditches, if we do not make preparations, then we will not be able to contain and we will not be the people that God wants us to be in order to perpetuate and and to be able to conserve and consolidate the results that happen and be able to minister it to others. I want to suggest to you six ways that we can dig ditches tonight. If you'll put that up for me, Stacy. Thank you. Very briefly, I want to give you ten very practical, or six very practical ways that I would suggest that we need to dig ditches. The first one, I, I hardly mention it because I thought all Christians tithed. I, I mean, I just assumed that every, I mean, that's kind of the minimum starting place if you're a believer is that you need to tithe. You know, we need to give 10% to the Lord, like the scripture says. Jesus says if we're unfaithful in the use of unrighteous money, how can we be entrusted with the true riches, you know? So to me, it's like, you know, tithing is kind of the, the square one in our, in our Christian life. It grieves me when I've talked to numerous Christians that say, I, I can't afford to tithe. Friends, you can't afford not to. And if you're going to dig a ditch, you need to tithe. And I'm not saying you have to tithe here. You seek the Lord about where He wants to give, where He wants you to give. But you need to be devoting the first 10% of your income. Even if you have a minimum wage job and you earn $40 a week, you need to tithe. The second one, we need to redeem the time. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And I want to challenge all of you in a very specific area that the Lord has laid on my heart, and it's the area of TV, videos, and movies. I just want to share my heart with you so don't don't hear something that I'm not saying. But I do not think you can walk in the Spirit and watch 
large amounts of television and watch the kind of videos that are available today. It pollutes your mind so badly. I don't know how you can preserve a pure heart. I don't know how you can stay away from the distractions that that amount of garbage puts in your mind. I would like to suggest, friends, that you could dig a ditch in 1996 by abstaining from movies, videos, and television. It's radical, isn't it? But see, how bad do you want to hear the word of the Lord? How bad do you want to have the word of the Lord for a lost and a dying generation? I believe that it is going to be a fearful day when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we have to give an account for the hours we wasted in front of the television set. We have more leisure time than any culture has ever had on the face of the earth. You know, in most other centuries, people had to work 15, 16 hours a day just to survive, just to make sure the potatoes were peeled and the, the grain was brought in and they had enough food to last and enough firewood to keep warm over the winter and enough sewing to have, so they have the minimum of clothes for their body. There wasn't the luxury of time off because if you didn't store your food, you starved. If you didn't make your clothes, you, you went cold. If you didn't take care of you and your family, nobody else would. And God has allowed the Western culture to have phenomenal amounts of time and leisure. The fact that we, we, we have six to seven hours a day free time when we can do other things is unheard of in the history of the world. And Jesus is going to say, what did you do with that time? I would challenge you to give up football, sports. God forbid anyone's listening to soap operas, but if you are, may you repent in the name of the Lord. So I'm not, I'm not trying to lay a legalistic trip on you. What I'm trying to do is, can you hear the heart of God? If you want the word of the Lord, if you want to be a person that has the word of the Lord, people will say, yes, Steve has the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is with him. There's a price to be paid. And I believe God's calling us to redeem the time. Number three, our possessions. There's a saying that says, the wise hold all things lightly. They are stripping for eternity. And just like a runner in the marathon discards any excess weight. You don't find marathon runners wearing a 25-pound backpack, do you? And they shed everything. They get the lightest clothes. They get the lightest garments because they want all their energy to go in the race. And let us not allow the love of things to hinder us from running the race. Let's dig ditches by paring down our lifestyle. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, And Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. One of the dear brothers here told me that the Lord spoke to him to give up his gun collection. Big gun collection. Lots of bucks. Lots of time. And Jesus said, Son, if you're going to walk with me, sell your guns. You know what he did? He sold his guns. Because it was more important to do the will of God than to keep on to his material possessions. Let's let God deal with your lifestyle. Just say, Jesus, what, what do you want me to give up? What do you want me to give up? Number four, using our resources to care for the poor. I believe that if this renewal is going to have credibility in the eyes of the world, it must translate into care for the less fortunate in our world. Again, we live in such affluence 
even the poorest among us, what we call the poverty line in America is a joke if you travel overseas. I mean, what we call poverty is, is riches compared to way, compared to the way probably 60% of the people who live in the earth right now today, the poor of the earth that, that have very little. And we are rich. All of us in this room are wealthy beyond imagination. And I believe Jesus is calling us to be sensitive to the poor and needy, to be sensitive to those that don't have as much as we do. You know, we can live a simple lifestyle and still live better than most kings and royalty did in terms of convenient and comfort. Maybe, maybe we don't have gold dishes and silver goblets, but we have more conveniences because we got a warm house, we got clothes, we got transportation. Even if it's an old clunker, we're just, we're miles ahead of where any other generation has been. When John the Baptist was preaching, some of the soldiers said to him, what do we do? Because he said that every bad tree is going to be cut down and every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cast into the fire. So these people are going, whoa, Lord, what do we do? And John the Baptist says, says, let a man who has two tunics share with him who has none and let him who has food do likewise. That's fruit of repentance that John the Baptist was calling for. My wife and I, Joy and I, support YWAM's mercy ships. And they go around the world into needy areas and they do works of mercy. They have dentists and doctor care. They just go in and help people, no charge, and show the love of Christ to them. And we, we, we have a monthly commitment that we make that. That's above our tithe. You know, it's above that. Because I want to do something to help the poor and the needy of the world. And there's, there's a lot more I can do. And I'm open to the Lord speaking to me about that. Number five, a dedication to prayer. I greatly admire Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave Delgetti. He's a, a dear friend. He's a mentor and he's, he's my pastor. And most of you don't know this, but you know, Dave's here every morning at 6 a.m. He's praying for us, interceding. He's not doing it to be noticed by men, but he's made a commitment to prayer. And you know, we just can't ride on the wave of excitement, friends. We just can't ride. I, I, man, I love the excitement. These are great days, aren't they? But we cannot just ride that wave because it, it's going to break and crash one of these days. What's going to sustain us is the commitment and dedication to prayer. We have morning prayer at, uh, on the campus, three mornings a week from 7.30 to 8.30. And uh, we've got anywhere from uh, two of us to, to 20 of us that come on any given morning. And I, I, challenge, I challenge my students, you got to be here. You just got to make the commitment to do it. You know, I don't always feel like coming to prayer. Sometimes I'm tired, but I do it because it's the right thing. You know, it's the thing Jesus wants us to do. It's making ditches. Well, I was in Toronto and just the glorious things that God did a year ago in my life. One of the times when I was down on the carpet doing some carpet time, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Dick, he said, it's my justice that you're here. I thought, why is that, Lord? And the Lord said, Dick, you have prayed for years, and I have. I've prayed that God would pour out His Spirit. The Joel 2.28 prayer is a prayer I've prayed for years, and I pray regularly still. God, pour out Your Spirit, not only on the MSU campus, but around the world, on all the nations of the world. That, that's a, that prayer is just a part of me. I've prayed that in the secret place almost daily for the last 22 years. And God says, it's my justice, Dick, because you prayed for this, and now you're, you're getting to see the results of your prayers. And I went, thank you, Lord, isn't that neat? But I prayed when I didn't feel. There's days I didn't, I didn't 
I mean, I, I wasn't, I mean, I, by faith, I knew God would do it, but I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't feel anything. I just said, Lord, your word says it. I want you to pour out your spirit upon the nations. And he does it. That's digging ditches, friends. So instead of watching your favorite TV show, why not, why not set aside an hour, just 15 minutes for prayer? So give up something and just make it part of your day. Paul Austin, I love Paul. He's, you know, down in Pocatello now. There's a campus minister, but you know, he always gives people these little prayer cards with a baggie over them. And he says, now hang this in the shower. He says, everybody showers every day. And he says, now when you shower, hang that up on your shower wall and pray for me while the, while you're getting splashed with warm water. You know, and it works because everybody takes a, sh- most of us take a shower every day, you know, it works. It works, you know, but see, we've got to make it part of our lives, you know, and not just when we, anybody can pray, you guys, when the spirit of God is moving and it's exciting and you're just pumped to be there. But it's not always that way, is it? So a lot of days when it feels like the heavens are brass and God has you on hold and is anybody there? And you just, you do it by faith and you do it by dedication. God hears those kinds of prayers. That's the kind of prayers that will dig ditches. You know, when I was a new Christian, I got saved here through Christian Center Church. We used to have two services. We had a nine o'clock service and a 1030 service. Nobody told me to do this, but you know what I used to do? I used to come here at nine o'clock and I used to go downstairs in the Sunday school rooms and pray for an hour and a half. And then I'd come to the second service. I must have done that for a couple of years. Nobody told me to. I just wanted to do that. I wanted to devote myself to prayer. God will honor that, friends. I challenge you to do that. Last one is evangelism. Taking the message to the world. All of us must dig ditches by being vocal about our faith. Last night, we had the eight students that just got back from Toronto a few days ago. We did a public meeting on campus, put up posters, and, and uh, we had a pretty good crowd last night. People that no- normally come to our fellowship. And why do we do that? It's because we're wanting to proclaim what Christ is doing. And God brought some hungry people to us. It was neat, a neat time. I write letters in the newspaper defending Christianity because I want the world to know. How about the boldness to witness in every situation that we're in? The boldness to say something about the Lord in the checkout stand or to that business associate that you've known for several years. When we, when we, we, when we left on our trip, we stopped for gas in Park City, Chuck and Shelly and I, and, uh, I was paying for the gas and someone came up to, to either Chuck or Shelly and said, uh, can you help me? I, my car needs a jump. And so Shelly comes up and says, Dick, do you have jumper cables? And I said, yes. She said, can we help this lady? I said, sure, we can do that. So she climbs in our car and we drive a few blocks to her car that's stalled and, and, and we get, we get to talk with her a little bit on the, on, for the few minutes we're in the car and she asked us if we were religious because we had some tape series that we were listening to all the way and she, are you guys religious? And so we just told her, no, we just love Jesus, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we, you know, I got the jumper cables out and, uh, you know, we got her car started and then she says, thank you and she's ready to leave. And, and I just said, could we pray for you? And, and she said, oh, okay. You know, most people don't object to you praying for them? I, I never had anybody turn me down. If I'd say, can I pray for you? Well, yeah, all right. Yeah, what can it hurt, you know? So we just simply joined, can, joined hands around her car that's running, and we just prayed that Jesus would come and make himself real to her. And some of the things she shared with us, we, we just immediately became aware that there's some real pain in her life. We just prayed that God would touch her right where she was at and make Jesus real to her. We said amen, and we looked at her, and there's tears pouring down her eyes. We all gave her a hug and said, God bless you. And off she went and off we went to New Mexico. Just that moment of serving, a moment to be bold for Jesus. I believe that's what he's calling us to do. 
So what's our response tonight? I want to suggest several responses. Number one is if you've blamed God, there's been something in your heart that has blamed God for the mess your life is in. I want you to repent of that tonight. Friends, you'll never get well if you blame God. You'll just never get well because you're cutting yourself off from the hand of grace of God. The other issue, the second issue is a willingness to pay the price to have the word of the Lord. Because it's going to cost you something. I can't tell you what that cost is going to be. I talked to a pastor who loved baseball. And God spoke to him many years ago. He says, you must give up baseball if you're going to walk with me. He did it. And he, and he said that had happened 20 years before when he told me that story. But he obeyed Jesus. And I said, I really can't tell you what the issue is. But Jesus can. And when he says, I don't want you doing this anymore, then you need to be willing to do it. If it's sell your guns, get rid of your snowmobiles, or I don't know what it is. But Jesus knows that. Are you willing to pay the price? And then, digging the ditches. Maybe God has spoken to you about a ditch tonight, whether it be tithing. Maybe the challenge of TV and videos and movies stuck home to your heart tonight. Maybe it's the poor and needy. Maybe it's having a dedicated time of prayer. And maybe it's evangelism. But whatever it is tonight, I want you to respond to God. I want you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. I want you to dig ditches so that what Jesus wants to give you can be conserved and given to others. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.